Hello everyone and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Steve Took um, and with me from Cucumber today is Seb Rose. Um, Seb, you invited our guest today, Alan Kelly. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about why you invited Alan and uh, introduce him to us? Sure. Um, Alan's an old friend of mine. We've been, uh, we've been crossing paths ever since the early days of an organisation called ACU, A-C-C-U. Uh, and uh, we'll ignore what those letters stand for. If you're interested, you can you can get in touch with us offline. Um, Alan's been working as an agile consultant for oh, longer than I can remember. He's written some really excellent articles and blog posts over the years. He's also written a number of books, uh, and quite recently he uh, even created his own agile method or fusion of several other agile methods, cunningly entitled Zanpan. Uh, and so. Basically, I invited him along because he's got a lot of interesting things to say, uh, and uh, at least from this distance with him on the other side of the screen, when he gets very exercised, um, I won't feel the flow of hot breath all over me. So um, it's really great that you came along, Alan, and in fact, this is your second visit because we managed to lose your recording the first time. So it's excellent, you know, we're getting off to a good start. Uh, maybe maybe we could start off. Uh, you could tell us about how you got became an agile consultant in the first place. Oh, how did I become an agile consultant? Uh, not quite by accident. Um, the ACCU has a, a role to play in that actually, because um, I started speaking at ACCU conferences, and I was I was talking about stuff that I was doing at the time, which I think was. Um, C++ porting was the first thing I spoke about. And uh, I discovered I like doing this, like presenting stuff. And some people liked me doing it. And one thing led to another. And when you stand in front of a room, people think you know something about the thing you're talking about. And from doing a few conference presentations, uh, I, it kind of became a, an occupation, whether it was a, you know, a formal training session or more of a a consulting session where people are asking you advice and you're talking around issues. Um, I don't like the term agile coach. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if agile coaches actually do coaching, and I don't think people really hire me for my bedside manner or my counselling. I think they hire me because I know something about software development and specifically agile software development. So. As much as I dislike the term agile consultant, I, I just roll with the term consultant. You've got to be called something, haven't you? So I suppose it, it describes what you do better than possibly software developer. I mean, you, would you consider yourself to be a software developer at the moment? Uh, I, an amateur software developer, maybe. You know, back in the day, uh, as you'll remember, I was a, I was a hardcore C++ developer, you know, serious developer. Um, I got to a point where I couldn't keep up with what was happening in C++ and keep abreast of all the other things I was interested in, you know, um, management, agile requirements, all the rest of it. And I guess partly because I was, you know, getting a little bit older, I, I kind of deliberately gave up some of the coding side to pursue other interests. Um, that said, I still dabble from time to time. And, and last summer I wrote about 10,000 lines of Python and HTML. Um, so I do, I do dabble. And... I still consider myself a software engineer, though maybe not yeah. a programmer. Because I think, you know, what we do, it's all about engineering, but I don't engineer anymore by writing code. I engineer by changing the processes and organizations um, rather than coding. So it's like 
coding one step or two steps removed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you were working. You, you were working as a developer. You've been going to Aku. You gave some um, some uh, some talks that were well received. Things in the C++ world, as everybody who's listening to this talk will know, it's just at the cutting edge of all forms of software development, and it's hard to keep up with it. Uh, and then you you started doing consulting. Did, did you start off doing that sort of work on your own, or um, did you did you work with a consultancy? How did you how did you make that leap? Um, you know, I think everybody who gets into this sort of game, or almost everyone I've met. Um, it's something you think about, but actually it's when push comes to shove, you, it's quite a leap to make. And um, a company I was working for, I'd, I'd, I'd coached them, I'd introduced Agile effectively and I'd, I'd, I'd helped some teams adopt it. And um, they had a round of layoffs. They are going quite a bad way and I was caught up in one of the layoff rounds. And I discovered that people wanted my Agile knowledge and uh, I started off first few years. I did some some contracts. I think at one stage I may even been called a project manager. Um, different contracts, different titles. Um, and then I decided that I, di- I didn't want to do this contracting stuff because when you get into a contract, you, the parameters are pretty much defined. So I made a, a deliberate choice to be more of a. Um, I use the word consultant. I I wander into companies. I give them some advice. Sometimes I'm there many days a week. More likely, I'm there for a few days, not there for a few weeks, there for a few days, away for a few weeks. Back, I kind of like to drop in. I like to help move companies forward, but then I don't want them becoming dependent on me. I want them. To, I want to see if they can do what they've talked about doing. Because at the end of the day, yeah, I, I suppose I could stand over them and frog march them through everything we're talking about, but really. If they don't make the changes themselves if they don't live the dream then mm-hmm. are, are they really changing so i prefer what i call light touch co- um coaching and um, i also do a bit of training and in the ideal world we do a little bit of training to get started and then we follow up with coaching um and that that, that model kind of works well there's this there's this um thing that works really nice isn't there where you let people kind of try things out and make their own mistakes because then the questions that they have are much better and yeah. and the help you can give them really um is much more focused is that the sort of is that what you mean with the light touch coaching? exactly i i think if people are gonna understand this they they have to try doing it for themselves and when they try doing it for themselves they will get questions which they can't imagine of that they'll run into issues they'll they will come against situations which perhaps nobody's none of us have seen before and it's through them doing it that they will pull the information from you. Um, the other thing, as we always say in Agile, you know, the best way of learning is to do. You know, it's simply you do it and you see what happens. Um, at the same time, I, I believe that they are forming a model in their own minds. They are understanding it. They're internalizing it. And frankly... If they're not motivated to change, if they're not motivated to do it, then it's going to become pretty apparent very clearly that, you know, that they, they don't want you there. So there's, um, there's one client I worked with a few months ago, and um, they wanted me there a lot. Or the organization wanted me there a lot. But the, the team I've been asked to work with, they didn't seem to want me there. They didn't invite me to any meetings 
Um, they had lots of meetings with business analysts and project managers and architects and the outsourcers and everyone else. But for some reason, I didn't get invited. And I eventually asked the, the program manager and he said, it, 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 it's okay, when we're ready to get into planning, we'll, we'll give you a call. And it was like, you know, you, don't, you obviously don't want me here. And you've defined Agile as a form of planning, which you will one day get to. And, you know, that's, that's defining it. It's such a narrow, narrow thing. You, it's like, you know, tying not just one, but both hands behind your back. Um, and of course, the project was going to fail. You could see that a mile off. They were going to frame it. So um, naturally, I fired that client. That's an important thing to be aware of, isn't it? It's that clients can be fired just like we can be fired. Yes. You, know, you don't have to. Well, or rather, you don't want to get into a situation where you're dependent on a single client. And if you don't like them, you're stuck with them. Yes. That's, that's, the, Although that's, that's a nice place to be. Let me, let me tell you another story. A few years ago, I was uh, working with a large airline and uh, I was driving in one morning for my, one of my monthly visits. And I was thinking, these guys aren't improving. These guys aren't getting any better. I've been coming in here for a year or more. Um, they, they, they stopped taking my advice. They stopped changing. We're having the same old rows. I really have to pull out of here. I may even have become a block to them changing because they think they've got an agile coach and therefore they're doing agile. And on that day, for the first time, I met two new hires. They had a new project manager, quite junior, and a new BA who was really quite senior. And I met them both for the first time that day separately. And both of them, within minutes of walking into the room with me, said, this is so good here. I've worked other places that call themselves Agile, but it's not half as good as this. Wow. And I realised, you know, um, everyone defines Agile differently. And a lot of the time, Agile doesn't mean much more than better. Whatever you're doing at the moment, it's better. Now, I know, and you know, Serb and Steve, we know things in Agile which we would hold to be sacred that we think you really must be doing. We know how good it can get. But for an awful lot of people, Agile really just means better than how they're doing at the moment. So I was, I was just, so one of the questions I, I kind of had for you uh, was going to be around like, what do we mean when we say agile? And we've said it a lot already, but I think maybe um, from what you've just said, a more interesting way to look at that perhaps is um, what are some of the key problems that agile is trying to solve? And what, so what are the problems that you're seeing in teams that they're looking for help with and how is agile or, or the way we're encouraging people to work, helping them solve those problems? Oh, wow. Hmm. I think the way Agile is often perceived is Agile software development. And particularly for larger organizations, Agile is something the guys down below, the, engine, the software engineers, it's something they do. They do these crazy stand-up meetings and funny poker and God knows what else. And they are, don't really see Agile as much more the way software engineers work. Again, that's an awfully constraining view. Um, you know, the ultimate promise of Agile or agility yeah, is that the organization as a whole can 
not only respond to change, but can seize opportunities. And because it can seize opportunities, it can create problems for its competitors. It can out-compete the others. And, you know, you do see companies around that they may not call themselves agile, but you do see companies that can harness technology in this fashion. For most companies, though, technology is just always late, always over budget, always low quality, and they've almost lost the ambition to be better. And the promise of agile that, you know, many of us see is never realized by a lot of companies because they, they define it narrowly. Agile can be really broad. But I think something's changing here. You know, there's this word that goes around, and I think until a few months ago, I didn't appreciate it. And many of the listeners maybe need to think about this. Digital. We've had this word digital floating around for a couple of years. And if, if listeners are anything like me, I kind of ignored it. It's just, you know, all it means is getting a computer to do it. What's the alternative? Analog. And it's only relatively recently that the full meaning of this digital thing dawned on me. You know, it's not just about computers. It's not just about the cloud or apps on your iPhone. It's not, you know, we've also got to throw in drones. We've got to throw in artificial intelligence. You've got to throw in big data. You've got to throw in GPS. You've got to throw in a load of other modern technologies, which are fundamentally changing the way businesses do business. If the business isn't changing and starting to leverage these technologies, it's only a matter of time before a competitor shows up who does. You're either going to change and embrace these digital technologies or someone will do it to you. And all these technologies share in common software. None of these technologies are possible without some form of software. And true, if you go and buy a drone, you've bought some software off the shelf. If all you ever do is buy off the shelf, your scope for innovation, your scope for originality, uniqueness is very limited. You have to get into engaging with software. And, and this is probably why I, I'd ignore digital, because it's about software. And I, I know software. I've been doing that for decades, you know. But actually, the implication of digital is that every business needs to take software seriously, even if you don't produce software yourself, or even if you don't, if you don't directly employ programmers. You need to employ people who employ programmers. You need to employ people who can manage the work of outsourced programmers. And not only does every business become a technology business, every business becomes a, a software business. And so we get back to Mark Andreessen's software is eating the world. Now, nobody in this digital world is going to try and do it waterfall. Could, could, you, could you imagine someone trying to do a big data project in a waterfall fashion? Could you imagine what the requirement is going to look like? Or oh, an AI project? You know, for Christ's sake, you know. Um, did you see on Slashdot the other day that Facebook have got an AI that has learned how to lie? Where was that, where was that in the specification? When did Facebook say the AI will lie? But no, it's a neural net. Or I guess it's a neural net. You, know? um, you, you, can't, you can't even dream of doing these things in a waterfall fashion because the technologies we are building are beyond the comprehension of people to, to think about, let alone write down what they want. Um, and this is one of the mismatches that we face these days, that the, the people who are in senior positions in organisations, um, 
don't have the same understanding of what the technology is capable of. The people on the code face have a much better understanding of what the technology can do. And we're using Slack and Hangouts and Wikis and God knows what else. And the people high up the organization are several steps removed from that. And they don't completely grasp what the technology is capable of. And they don't completely grasp how that is actually changing the way they need to both manage their businesses and the way they do business. In the extreme, Agile converges with digital and it's all of this and more. So it's interesting because digital is one of those words that it's attached to a, a large grab bag of things and, uh, you know, and in, it's not so much an initiative, but a concept. Then the word doesn't do it justice at all. But you see these little digital departments springing up all over the place. And you think, oh dear. And what I see is there's a still, the companies, the, the large old companies are trying to go digital in the same way that they used to go agile oh, yeah. and they spin up a digital team and they think that that'll probably do it um, and so interestingly it's just cropped up again um, this week uh, a colleague of ours Mark Dalgarno has just is working on a post around uh, sheer faces between different parts of the organization so he's building on uh, stuff that uh, has been around in 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 the, certainly in the Aku world for a long time which is a, a book called How Buildings Learn oh and yeah talking about trying to keep various parts of the systems separate if they are, he's got it on the shelf, if, if they evolve at different <laughs> speeds. Uh, and the observation that Mark is making and that other people have made before him is that organisations are the same. There are parts of the organisations which can adapt and learn to change fast, and there are parts of the organisations that just don't. Uh, and this, uh, this is exactly what seems to be happening in the large banks. They're spinning off a digital team to try and keep up with things, but yeah. they're leaving their project management, their portfolio <sighs> management, yeah. all in yeah. a slower space. Yeah, so before, let, uh, go on, Steve. Well, I was going to say, so I was sat um, having a conversation with Woody Zool the other day, and this, this like, <laughs> reminds me of this exact conversation we had, uh, but it was kind of the level above this, and it's talking about systems and large organizations are systems and the thing about systems is they like to get back to their steady state right mm -hmm. and uh, you can give a system a push and it will kind of move and do things differently for a while but unless you kind of keep working on it keep pushing um, it will tend back to its steady state and and these these digital departments that we're talking about these agile teams and things they are the little push that's just like let's let's go but it's not enough to rock the whole system and and affect change so like, so before bef system. before I come back on that let's recommend to to listeners um how buildings learn book by steve brand i discovered recently that um well i knew for a long time the bbc had filmed the book and I discovered recently he's posted the entire series on YouTube. There are oh, six wow. episodes of How Buildings Learn from the late 90s available for free to watch on YouTube. I cannot recommend it highly enough. So, so, so while, while listeners are checking that out, go back to this digital transformation, agile transformation. You know, the, the secret is, is well, maybe not the secret, the, the lie is in the name. The idea that we can do a, quote, transformation, unquote. You know, in the digital world, you don't transform and carry on as you were. This is for life. 
There's, there's no, you don't just re-digitise everybody and then let them go. They if only you could. If <laughs> only you could, yeah. It's like, um, you know, um, business transformation is the other term that gets applied here. And it dawned on me the other day, somebody used the term business transformation. They were talking about agile transformation, actually. It was agile business transformation. And it occurred to me, the problem here is not the techies. We often get blamed. We often get fingered. I, and we're not, we're not, we're not clear white as a driven snow kind of thing. You know, we're not completely innocent. But actually, techies, engineers, left to their own devices, are doing this stuff. The problem is the rest of the business, which still believes that technology, that transformation, that digital is something that happens over there. It's the rest of the business that needs to transform. And one of the things they need to transform, and, and Steve, just hinted that they're mentioning, you know, all, all these reams of managers, is this um, fear of coding you see in a lot of organisations. And I'm thinking of one very large bank I was inside recently, you know, and there's almost a palpable fear of letting anyone code. Uh, I distinctly remember one meeting I sat in for an entire morning, and there must have been a dozen people in there. There was, there, was, there was me, the Agile coach. There were some business analysts. There were some architects. There were some program and project managers. There were some representatives from the outsourcer. Because, of course, the bank doesn't employ any coders itself. No, no, no. Coding should be done as cheaply as possible, as far away as possible. So that means the outsourcer has to have people in the room to negotiate what these guys are going to code, right? All morning, this frigging meeting goes on. And they're talking about, you know, business requirements, architecture, but it's all fantasy. You know, they, they, they might as well be reading e &M Banks or something. They're just imagining how this stuff could work. And it was all brought home to me at one point where they, they, one of the architects, oh, we'll have to use OAuth for this or OAuth 2. And I thought, oh, I know a bit, I've done a couple of OAuth, in my, maybe my amateur program, I've done a couple of OAuth integrations, but I didn't say anything. I was there as a coach member, I'm not there to advise them. The conversation, my God, was so ill-informed. It was the blind leading the blind. These guys were architects. They probably started their careers on mainframes or at least on AS400s. You know, anyone, even myself, who had done a little bit of OAuth 2 could have short-circuited an hour's worth of conversation into 10 minutes. But because they didn't know, they, the conversation went. So there's this fear of coding. We are, we are so scared of somebody coding something. We're so scared of someone coding the wrong thing that we must not allow people to code unless we are absolutely certain they're going to code the right thing, which means we need an army of BAs to tell them what the right thing is, an army of architects to ensure that the way they're going to code it is right, an army of project managers to make sure everyone's marching in step. Maybe that made sense in 1970 when you paid one and a quarter million US dollars a month to rent an IBM mainframe and you program COBOL on a teletype or a green screen on an IMS hierarchical database. My kids have got a Raspberry Pi now, which is 450 times more powerful than that IBM mainframe, and it costs about 35 US dollars. Oh, and it's got about a thousand times more memory. In 1970, 
it made sense to analyze the hell out of everything because CPU cycles were expensive. In 1970, the systems were small enough to analyze. In 2017, CPU cycles are dirt cheap. Paper is expensive compared to CPU cycles. And having a bunch of architects and BAs sit in a room for an hour is hideously expensive. And we're not programming in COBOL, we're programming in Python, Ruby, Clojure, God knows what else. We have more computing power at our fingertips than you could dream of in 1970. And the expensive bit is all the people. It's cheaper to let some people program, and if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Fail fast, fail cheap, especially write, write your cukes, you know? It's the Cucumber Podcast, write your cukes so you know you've got it wrong. Um, just do something, see what happens, and iterate. But the management processes we have, the business approach, is this fear of coding, a fear of programming. Don't let the programmers anywhere near the keyboard. But even in the 70s, uh, Royce did his paper and said, don't, don't do it this way. There's no way you're gonna get it right up front. You have to do it in short iterations and get feedback. Absolutely, I, I, I am quite happy to argue Royce got it right. I'm quite happy to argue in 1970 it was wrong. However, I've also learned over the years that's a pretty pointless conversation. It's just more wrong now. You might, well, you might as well just accept it. You know, I don't know about you, Seb, but over the years, I've occasionally bumped into, you know, friends, colleagues like yourself, and they'll say to me, you know what? I met an old-timer the other day, and do you know what they said? They said they used to test. They said they used to iterate. And a couple of months ago, I, I went to a, one of my university alumni dues, and I met that wow. old-timer. She, she, she was like a 70-year-old retired lady and she started asking me what I'd do. And she, she'd done mathematics in the 40s and 50s and she, she got a job. I made me with IBM. And so I described what I did and she was kind of smiling and laughing. And then she, she opened up and said, you know, she's flabbergasted by all this she hears about IT projects. And when she was a programmer in the 60s and 70s, <laughs> and it's absolutely true. There's a whole bunch of skills which programmers had in the 60s and 70s, which sometime in the 80s we forgot. And I'll blame two people for this. One, I will blame um, the people who read Winston Royce's paper and they believe this is a description of how it should be done. Specifically, I'll blame the American Department of Defense and all the people who copied it. The other people I'll blame it is you, Seb, you, Steve, and me. Those of us who learned to program on a ZX81 and a BBC Micro and all those books we learned to program on forgot to tell us to test our software. And there's a generation of us who grew up forgetting to test our software. And we had to reinvent it in the late 90s. And when we reinvented it, we used the power of the computer. We reinvented it as automated test-first development. Yeah, we just rediscovered the past. But, uh so, so Kent Beck, when he talks about um, TDD, that's, he, he talks about d discovering it from the past, doesn't he? He talks about finding stories of people creating punch tapes that they then compare with the output punch tapes. And that gave him his idea for writing a test first. Yes. Well, so I'll tell you, there's, there's another lesson. We, we, I think the, the UBDD guys have actually stumbled across. There's another lesson from the past. Um, so one of the other approaches they tried in the 1970s and 80s 
was mathematics, or rather predicate logic. And I don't know about you guys who at university at the same time as me, we had drummed into us writing formal mathematical specifications of stuff. You know, I came out of university, I, I thought this was a solution. Oh my God, how wrong were we? Uh, but the important thing is that the way we did it, they used this thing called VDM, was you wrote a mathematical statement about the state of the system. You then wrote another mathematical statement about the state of the system after you'd done the execution. And you could mathematically validate these things. And I realized a few year, a couple of years ago, this is, this is given when then? Given a predetermined state of the system, which, you know, in Cucumber, you, you do pseudo-English, you, you could change Cucumber to use predicate logic. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and you, we use, we use pseudo-English to do the post statement. But again, you could change it. You know? And I think what we've rediscovered again is, is an old idea, preconditions, postconditions. Hmm. Well, so we and we can see little trails of them going back through the past. So there was um, uh, Bertrand Mayer and his Eiffel, which had preconditions and postconditions built into the language. .NET have tried to do that as well in the recent past. Yeah, and if you go if you go further back, you you'll find a language called Z, where uh, people have tried yeah. to do it mathematically. Well, that's what uh, I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. No one understood it. A colleague of mine tried doing it at a company that I worked in, and he spent six months in it. At the top of a building, third floor, and at the end of six months, he said, "Here it is." Uh, what is it? God. Yeah. So, um, we this has been an interesting conversation. I want to move us on a, a little yeah. bit, though. So, um, and I think it, it links, it segues anyway into what we're talking about. You wrote for me a really influential article for InfoQ a number of years ago, maybe 2011, 2012, called "Dear Customer." Oh yeah. Uh, now, the Dear Customer letter, I actually I give it to a lot of my trainees before the course and get them to read it. I specifically use it at Lancaster University on a, a postgraduate course that I use uh, because uh, it says something really important. Uh, and rather than me say what it says, could you paraphrase it into two or three sentences? <laughs> oh, paraphrase Dear Customer, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, it's one of those pieces that keeps coming back from the past. Every so often someone rediscovers it. and there's a, um, Basically what I say is, you know, we, the IT industry, we, we've trained our customers to believe our customers can tell us what they want. We can tell them how much it'll cost, how, when it'll be delivered, and our customers go home happy knowing they've given us worthwhile money. And I say, this is a complete fantasy because um, we, we know you're going to change your mind. We've done this enough times before that the things you've asked us to build doesn't really describe what you actually want. And even if it does, as we go through this, you're going to change your mind. So we're pulling with a contact on you. And secondly, um, when we tell you how long it's going to take, we honestly don't know because uh, not only is estimation not reliable enough, but we don't get the people who are going to do the work to give the estimates. And since we know it's all going to change anyway, it's all built on sand. But we, we propagate this myth. <laughs> and uh, I say, yeah, it's, um, we, it's time we got honest. And if we faced up to the state of the IT industry, then actually a lot of these wacky way out there ideas, agile, don't seem so crazy. At the end of the day, perhaps the most important thing is that you, Mr. Customer, need to stop thinking you can just give us the problem and give us the risk. Because the only time we're going to take the, if, if we're going to take the risk on, we're, we're going to inflate our prices. 
we're going to push it up because what salesman wouldn't quote you the price, the highest price they think you're going to pay and then work down? You know, what's the point of estimates? If we're going to take the risk on, we're going to bump the price up. And we're really bad at this anyway. Um, we still don't know it's going to come out, right? You need to share with us. It has to be a co-created co -created thing. And while we propagate this myth that we know and we can be sure about this, we're not encouraging you to join in. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the message for me is, has been really clear, which is that fixed price contracts, if you really want fixed price, it's just like if you go for a fixed rate uh, mortgage, you pay more for it because yes. you, the person supplying it has to take the risk that the interest rates are going to change or that the project's going to overrun. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a great read, folks. Go out there, read read uh, the Dear Customer uh, letter. It's on InfoQ and you'll, you'll find it just by searching for Alan Kelly and Dear Customer. Uh, the links so, will be in the show notes. The links will be in the show notes. There you go. The best verse, the, the, the most recent edit of that is in the Zampan book which is freely available. It's in part of the sample you can get from free from LeanPub. So look at LeanPub, look for Zampan, you'll find the, the, the most up-to-date edit of that. <laughs> Excellent. So when you were talking about it, you were also mentioning estimates, and some people <gasps> that, that are watching this podcast will probably have come across this concept of no estimates, which has been a hashtag which has created a certain amount of, um, a certain amount of heat uh, Conversation. so much light over the past few years and Woody Zool who Steve was mentioning earlier is 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 mainly to blame uh, I'm sure Woody would, <laughs> Woody would accept that that level of blame but I would like to talk about a different hashtag I'd like yeah. to ask you about no projects yes tell us about thought, yeah. no projects <sighs> Uh, in, so, in your own words, without yeah. hesitation, deviation, or repetition, you've got one minute starting now. Well, no, no, the first thing though is no projects has, has, has changed a bit over the years, but it, it, it still holds true. Um, no projects is the original critique started saying if you look at the project model, it doesn't fit software development. Specifically, we, we, so first of all, we have to define what is a project. Because what is a project to a, to a programmer setting up Jenkins is different to what a project is to a project manager. So I take as my definition the, the Association of Project Ma or the um, Institute of Project Managers and the, the Prince Tuka, their definition. And they're about delivering fixed requirements in a fixed amount of time and, and those kind of things. And as I said a moment ago about dear customer, we don't really know what we're building. It's an evolving thing. And software, successful software, doesn't stop. I think when I look at definitions of projects, the, the, the unifying theme is a project's end. And the thing about software, successful software does not stop. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Microsoft said Office is finished, the last version of Office has shipped? Apart from the fact all the programmers on Office would now have to find new jobs. You know, the worst thing that could happen for Microsoft would be to produce the definitive version of Office or Windows. If software is useful, it evolves and it changes. We're back to how buildings learn. Software that is used needs to change, not necessarily because the software itself wears out. You know, the, the stack doesn't fill up. Um, but the world around it changes because the world around it is changing, we still want what that software does. So we need to evolve that software to match the world. 
and useful software expands, we do more and more with it. The only software that ends is dead software. You do not want software end, you want it to continue adding value. So the, the way software is, is, a, is a, an atrocious match for the project model. And the project model makes things worse because the project model it adds in planning, for example, lots of planning. By doing a lot of planning, you delay delivery of the software and that causes you problems on cost to delay. It also means you get problems about validating your model. It also has this nasty tendency to cause people to um, reduce quality. In project management terms, quality is often seen as a negotiable thing. You turn quality down and you go faster. You turn quality up, you go slower. And I think we know enough about software now to know the dial is wired the other way. If you want to go fast in software, you turn quality up as high as you can do. When you turn quality down in software, you get bugs, you get defects, you get ruinous architecture, and you go slower. So this started off as an observation. No project starts as an observation. The project model does not actually reflect the way we do software. And actually an awful lot of what passes for project management in a software quote project unquote is actually about trying to reconcile a model which doesn't fit the way the work is happening. Now what's interesting and the reason no projects has evolved is once you start to view the project model as, as wrong, once you relax the assumption that all software is developed as a project and you start to think about how should you develop software and you start to think about the qualities that you need high quality, that it's evolving, that demands are reappearing, what you start to realize is that this is a business problem. This is about your business continuing to evolve. And, um, you know, if you walk into Tesco's and the shelves are bare and the manager comes out and says, good news, Tesco's completed our project. We sold everything on the shelves. Tesco is finished. Tesco's were going home. This is a failure, isn't it, in business? Tesco's wants to sell more goods, which means it needs to keep you coming into the store, it means it needs to keep the shelves full. In a software business, like with Microsoft, you keep putting on new features, you keep applying it in new domains. If every business is a digital business, is a software business, then evolving your business means evolving your software. And the best example I know of this, unfortunately, is Uber. I mean, Uber's a disgusting company, isn't it? You know, the, the, the chairman of the board just, just stepped down. They're, they're sexist, they're misogynist, they have nasty work practice. Who uh, would I'd like to Uber? point out here that the views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of uh, Cucumber Limited. <laughs> I, I, I'm going by what I read in The Guardian. Okay, okay. True, true. Okay. Um, if, if you believe what you read in The Guardian, you probably, if do. you're a Guardian reader, you probably don't want to travel with Uber, right? But my God, I use Uber. I, I read The Guardian as well as other things, but I, I use Uber. Yeah, and the other week when I was in Australia, it was really useful to use the same app on my phone as I used in London. And Uber's fantastic, and the Uber product keeps evolving. I, I've tried to use an app from a local London taxi company. Um, it doesn't work in Brisbane. It doesn't work in Paris. You know, that's one problem. It doesn't give me the same information on when the taxi is coming. And it doesn't, it doesn't evolve. It doesn't move forward. They, they obviously paid somebody a few years ago to write an app, which they've rolled out. 
Um, it doesn't evolve. Uber, despite its flaws, keeps moving forward and keeps getting better. Uber could save themselves a lot of money by saying, uh, this software project is done. From now on, we don't have any developers. We just deliver taxis. Uber's a digital business, and the software and the business are not separate. They are one. The business is technology, and the technology is business. And, and, and then what they were able to do is realize we've got all these drivers sat around with our app, which tells them where to go. And what we can do is we can have another app on customers' phones, which means they can go and say, hey, I'd like a pizza. Yes. And then one of our drivers will drive around to the pizza shop, pick it up, and bring it over to you because they're sat there waiting for a job. So we'll give them a job. Exactly, Yes. You, you, if you, if you have a project and your project is done, you, you can't do that. I, a lot of this comes down to capability. That you've got the capability and it's 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 there, and you find uses for capability. And again, in the project model, capability is transient. Well, well because at the end of the project, the team splits up and team goes, gets disbanded. Yes. Yeah. So talking about capabilities, because I, I know that we're, we've used plenty of your time and we're coming towards the end of the hour that we had. So, and most of your listeners I, have stopped listening now, now anyway. No, no, they're all still here. You know, the, the crowd is growing by the minute. Um, we started off to asking you about um, your journey into Agile. And so I'd like to sort of segue us slightly towards the end by you telling us about your journey to the beach. Ah, the beach. So, Agile on the Beach is a fantastic conference, and it grew out of a project a few years ago to, to bring Agile to companies in Cornwall, because the, the people down there who are supporting Cornish businesses realised there's actually quite a few technology software companies down there. Um, and if you could give them Agile, then they could, they, they could grow and they could become better and they could outcompete people. And so there was some government funding on the table, and uh, government funding paid for me to go and give them <laughs> Agile. And this, I sometimes think exactly the Cornish Agile Laboratory. So, so we did this for 18 months, two years. Everybody else knows we got a conference out of this. We built this fantastic conference. About a year after the programme finished, there was a survey done, and we reckon the programme created about 50 jobs so this was an eye-opener for me. I didn't think government money could really create jobs, you know, but it did. And I was speaking to um, a guy this morning, Toby. He, he had a small company, which has grown a lot bigger since we took Agile to Cornwall, and he's getting close to hiring employee number 100. He had five people wow. when we started, and he's closer. Wow. And that is a direct result of Agile allowing him as a business, and he, he does outsourcing, him as an outsourcing business to win clients. And here's the important thing. Toby doesn't get you to sign off the requirements when you start. In fact, if you go to Toby and you say, here's a requirements document, how much will it cost to build it? He says, go and find somebody else. Give me a call when they screw up. Uh, I, I suggest everyone thinks about speaking to Toby if you need some outsourcing to help with your we don't do software here model. Um, and, and the, the conference is an excellent conference, so it sounds like you've, you've sold out, so no one's going to get any tickets this year. 2018 tickets will be on sale at 5 o'clock on, is it the 7th of July, the last day of the conference, we open ticket sales for the following year. Um, I, um, I can't, we don't have any speakers lined up, but I can tell you the name of one keynote for 2018 has been mentioned in this podcast already. 
Dun, 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 dun. And is it Steve Took? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. We don't um, <laughs> Alan, it's been really excellent. Thank you very much for giving us uh, some more of your time. We're going to very much hope that the, the recording works this time. And uh, <laughs> if not, be, we'll have another fun conversation in a few months' time. Uh, Excellent. We could just make it a regular standing conversation. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Brilliant. We'll ask the listeners. The listeners can mail in if they'd like it to be a regular thing. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good idea. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll also put your personal email on the programme notes. Uh, Excellent, folks. Thank you very much for coming along. Alan, thanks for coming along. Uh, Steve, uh, thank you for uh, joining me on this podcast. And uh, to everyone listening to the podcast, there'll be another one coming along very soon. Cheers for now.